Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. This episode explores what racial justice looks like in church and society and discusses what steps need to be put into place to turn all the conversations we heard last year into significant action towards justice, equity and inclusion. Good evening and welcome to this hour-long webinar titled What Does Racial Justice Look Like in Church and society. Now this event is being hosted by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland, CTBI for short, and my name is Richard Reddy and I'm the Director of Justice and Inclusion for Churches Together in Britain and Ireland, and I'm also your host for this evening. I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy uh, schedules to join us this evening for what promises to be uh, an hour of inspiring, educative and challenging conversation and repartee. Now, uh, we have with us uh, this evening a stellar lineup uh, of some of what I would consider to be the keenest minds with regard to this subject of racial justice. And before I introduce uh, our esteemed panel, I'll just give you an idea of uh, what the format is going to be like. Now, when uh, folk registered uh, for this webinar, uh, many individuals sent in questions. And what we will do is to put some of those questions to our panelists, and we will take those questions first. But while those questions are being asked, or even now actually, please feel free to send in your questions. Uh, and what we will do is uh, we will do our best to uh, respond to them. All I will say is that in terms of registrations, we've uh, had uh, an overwhelming, unprecedented response uh, to, uh, uh, to this webinar. So, you know, there are a lot of people uh, joining us this evening. So we can't answer all your questions. We will do our best uh, to get through them. So, uh, let me say this, finally, uh, before I actually introduce the panel, uh, this uh, webinar is uh, one in a series of webinars that Churches Together in Britain and Ireland is actually hosting on racial justice. Uh, please take a look at our website and you will find out more uh, of, uh, in terms of what other topics uh, will be discussed. So without further ado, let me introduce our panel uh, to you. And uh, I'm going to go through the list, and it's uh, in alphabetical order. So first up, we have the Reverend Dr. Canon Chigochike, who is a Church of England priest, chair of the Anglican Minority Ethnic Network. He's also a writer, a published author, a lecturer, and I'm going to say this, an all-round good guy. And then we have Alicia Phoenix-Louis, who is a PhD researcher at Canterbury Christ Church University and founder of Black Consciousness and Christian Faith, a five-session program designed for small group education, reflection, solution-making, reintroducing Christianity from an Afro-Asiatic perspective and equipping participants with tools to develop agency in the Christian education process. Then we have the Reverend Israel Oluwole Olofinjana, 
who is senior pastor of Woolwich Central Baptist Church, London, and founding director of the Centre for Missionaries from the Majority World. And that's a network initiative working in the areas of intercultural mission. He is also an African theologian, a pretty good one at that, who has written extensively about African Christianity in Britain. Then we have Edwina Peart, who is the Inclusion and Diversity Project of Coordinator for the Society of Friends, that's for Quakers in common parlance. In Britain, she works with the meetings, committees and groups to remove barriers and actively seeks wider participation to help deepen the spiritual life of the community and strengthen its witness. Then we have Bevan Powell, MBE, who is no stranger to CTBI webinars, and he's currently the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Advisor to the Methodist Church in Britain. And Bevan is a campaigner for racial equality and human rights and has spent most of his working career within the Metropolitan Police Service where he served in a senior management position um, for uh, seven, uh, for, the, the, for the police. And uh, Bevan has been retired uh, from the service for seven years. And he's also one of the founding members of the National Black Police Association in the United Kingdom and former chair of a Metropolitan Police Association based in London. Then we have the Reverend Mandy Ralph, who is a Church of Scotland minister serving in two rural parishes that cover three villages and the surrounding farms in South Ayrshire. Uh, she's involved in the equality, diversity and inclusion work within the church and working with the church leaders within the Church of Scotland on raising awareness on the issue of systemic racism within the church and the communities it serves. Then we have the Reverend Dr. Kevin Snyman, who is Programme Officer for Global and Intercultural Ministries at the United Reformed Church with oversight of the denomination's Global Justice Programme. And in his words, he is a white man who benefited from the structures of empire under apartheid and works hard to journey from being racist to anti-racist in a world shaped by the twin evils of white privilege and the economics of debt. Yogi Sutton, who is our, also another panelist, is equally from uh, South Africa, but now lives in Brixton, South London. And she is a founder, member, and the present chair of the Catholic Association for Racial Justice. And finally, uh, we have Jennifer Laurence Smart, who is Equality and Diversity Manager for the Salvation Army in the United Kingdom Territory and the Republic of Ireland. So as you can see, we have quite a lineup. Uh, a wonderful brain trust uh, to take us through uh, discussion on this most important of subjects, which is racial justice. So before I start to uh, 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 allocate uh, particular questions to uh, certain panelists, with this Sunday being Racial Justice Sunday and the title of the webinar being What Does Justice Look Like in Church and Society? As a starter for 10, I'm going to ask our panelists in a, uh, to respond to that uh, in their own words, what does justice uh, look like? Uh, and if they could be as succinct and as pithy as possible with this, that would be fantastic. So again, in alphabetical order, I'm going to put this uh, first question to uh, Reverend Chigo Chike. Over to you, Chigo. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Richard, and thank you for, for having me. Um, I thought about that question. I kind of... I changed it around a little bit. Uh, probably the same, same thing really, but I've changed it to what does church and society look like if there is racial justice rather than what racial justice looks like. 
because when I think about what church and society looks like, then my mind goes to what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is the place where we can have a vision of justice, every kind of justice, including racial justice. So when I think about that, what comes to my mind is a, a place where our, you know, the color of our skin, um, as was famously said by Bob Marley in one of his songs, uh, does not have a significance beyond the color of our eyes. So it's not that it doesn't have any significance, but it's not giving any more significance than it should have. A place where uh, our ethnicity is not used as a way of determining what we become or how people treat or regard us. Uh, so for me, it's more of a question of what church and society looks like when there is racial justice. And my vision of it is, a, is just the vision I have of the kingdom of God, a place where there is justice. Fantastic, thank you very much. And like a good Anglican, you kept the time. Um, Alicia, over to you. Hi, um, thanks for having me. Um, so just on this first question, I just felt that justice in church and society definitely must start. We have to have a clear sense of what is wrong. Um, and a lot of work invested and reflection just to understand what is wrong. If we're talking about racial justice, what is the scope of this racism? Um, making sense of it first to then develop genuine responses, genuine justice, um, rather than a vague kind of gray area, really investing time into getting a clear sense of, of where there is injustice and what it is. Um, and then secondly, I thought about church and society and really I feel we as a people, a body of believers, the body of Christ, not the institutions that we've created, but the priesthood of, believer, of believers should be leading society towards justice. It should begin with us. We are the light and salt of the earth. Um, and whatever, come, what, whatever we're working towards, we should strive to be the leaders, those inspired by God and the Holy Spirit um, and a revelation from the word. Um, that's where justice for me looks, starts, and then should reflect on and inspire society um, because they are separate. Um, and we're, we're in it, um, but they're different bodies. Um, and that making sense of that, having that clear sense is also important. Thank you. Uh, Brother Israel, over to you. Thanks, Richard. Um, I think for me, uh, what justice looked like in terms of the church is when we can move from a perspective of, you know, our church denominations, networks, uh, uh, you know, streams, whatever name we call it, organizations, when we can move beyond just uh, the dependency of appointing a racial justice person or a diversity group uh, to a place where racial justice become integrated and embedded within our system so that everyone in our church and organization becomes racial justice advocates. Then I think we're beginning to see justice move from just few experts to everyone actually understanding the issue and unpacking it. In terms of society, I think for me, justice looks like when, for example, in the UK, when we can move away from, at the moment, we're having a national debate about issues of race. And it's kind of sad in some sense because we're still debating it. And it makes it feel like it's, it's not actually real until we come to terms that actually we have issues about race in this country then I think we will never move forward. What does that look like for me? An aspect of that would be 
if there is a, when there is a rethinking and overhauling of our criminal justice system so that the high incarceration of black young people is decimated. Uh, that's one point. Uh, another is uh, when we begin to look at the issues of climate conversation, when climate conversations and NGOs and activism uh, can be decolonized in such a way that it's no longer seen as the monopoly uh, of white middle-class people, then I think we're beginning to see justice. Then also uh, within the police uh, service, when we can begin to see a high level of number uh, of black, Asian, Latin American folks occupying the higher echelons of the police force in greater number, then we are also seeing justice. And lastly, when there is a reform in our education system, uh, so that uh, Asian black British history is not seen as an optional extra, but actually becomes com something compulsory within the curriculum so that every child, uh, every young person can learn about that sense of history. For me, those are some pointers to begin to tell us that we are seeing justice in society and in church. Fantastic, thank you very much for that. Um, over to you, Edwina. Thank you. I thought what a beautiful question. And starting with society, my first thought was how sad and ugly it is that I had to imagine an answer, that I have no experience to fall back on. I don't live in a time or place where this is a reality. My parents didn't, and my son doesn't either. But I imagine that this would look and feel like a release, a release from background, foreground, and impinging racial tension. Tension that makes you feel deeply unwelcome, that makes you feel uneasy. So racial justice would be an exhalation, security from the violence of racism. I imagine it to be something like the feeling I get when I land in Jamaica. And that's strange because I'm an outsider there, but people are looking for links. They're seeking connections. They ask me if I was born there, which parish my parents are from. So it's a feeling of welcome, of belonging, of safety, of opportunity, of fit. In the Quaker faith community, racial justice might look like the deeply held principle of that of God in everyone is a reality. Therefore, I could be included, appreciated, without human-made barriers. I could be listened to and accepted for who I am, not what I'm perceived to be or expected to stand for. But physical signifiers, like someone else said, referring to Bob Marley, physical signifiers like skin would not exceed spirit or personhood or humanity. But the notion that everyone has equal access to God, to spirit, would mean that they're equally regarded and protected, and that this is the norm, not the exception. Excellent, good, good, good. Bevan, over to you, sir. Thank you, Richard. Um, for me, I, I agree with um, all that's been said um, already, but in, in terms of um, what what that vision might look like in a, a church setting. It's a place where I can see myself in all aspects of church life, that people that look like me, 
that our talents and gifts are recognized and celebrated. Uh, it's a place where we start to understand the causes of racism um, and, and, and where we can have a debate uh, and conversation, serious debates um, around racism without there being hostility and tension around the issue. In terms of society, then I think we start from a point where we start to address inequality, um, racial inequality in terms of health, in terms of the criminal justice system, in terms of employment, unemployment, deprivation, education. These are all the, the various aspects of our society that we need to address where we already know the disparities that exist. Good, excellent. Uh, Mandy. Um, I think you, God sees us as equal, but we don't always treat each other equally. And if we, we're thinking about justice and justice you know, in our churches, we really have to look at you know, our faith and our beliefs and how we actually carry that out. Sometimes we're good at the talk, um, but actually when it comes down to it, um, the way we treat people, the way we treat others is not just. And when we see injustice, we don't call it out for what it is. We like to bury our head in the sand or go in the hope that someone else will just deal with it because it's not our problem or we don't want to get involved. And so if we really truly believe you know, in, in our faith that God sees us all as equal, when we have to really take that on board and treat everybody equally to ensure that we're all included. Um, you know, laws are, are set, you know, to provide justice for, for everyone in society. But sometimes, actually, those laws fail us um, and, and can be actually detrimental to some people and exclude people um, and be unjust. And so we have to be sure that within our church that we are not doing that. And in our systems, from whichever faith organisation we're in, that we are being just and we're being true to what we believe. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Kevin. Yeah, following from what Alicia and Israel and others have said, I think that we have to accept that before we enter the promised land, we have to accept, we have to realise that we're still stuck in Egypt. And Frederick Douglass said that power concedes nothing without a demand and that the power of the oppressor today is so overwhelming, I would argue even greater than in Douglass's time, that it's systems of domination, economics, slavery, racism and propaganda are actually destroying the very planet on which we all rely for life. So the only choice for humanity's survival is a determined, sustained and relentless rebellion against the system of death. So what does justice look like in church and society today? It looks like global revolution. Thank you, thank you. And Yogi. Oh, it's very difficult to follow on with all of that, isn't it? I think it's more or less been said in every way that is possible. Uh, my prayer, my hope uh, would be that all of us, black, white, people with polka dots, doesn't matter who you are and where you are, for us to accept, to understand that we are made in the image and likeness of the one true God. God does not call on color. God does not call on wealth. God does not call on status. We are all equal in the eyes of our Lord. If we can only 
put into practice that vision that we are all equal. If we can accept every person we meet as a brother, as a sister, part of the one true body of our Lord, if that becomes a reality, there'll be no difficulty. We wouldn't be bothered, we wouldn't be scared, we wouldn't be questioning, there would just be acceptance. And that acceptance would be the love that we're supposed to have one for the other. We can show the love God shows for us, Christ died for us out of love. We can suffer a little bit of pain to show love for one another. And that would be my vision, where we treat everyone as an equal. We don't look to what status he has, what wealth he has, what material wealth there is. Just the person in the image and likeness of the one true God. We are all the people of God. Thank you. And then uh, finally, uh, Jennifer. Thank you. I think we, for me, I think we have to start with the end journey in mind. And so if, if I think about um, Revelations uh, chapter seven, we, we, we we're presented with an image of, you know, the community of people worshiping God, a community made up of diversity, you know, people of different languages, different color, all sorts of difference. And if we start with that in mind, then if that's what we're supposed to be aiming for, then we need to try and reflect that here. So I think that's really important. I think the other thing is about having a compassionate heart. Um, you know, through, through the scripture, both the Old and New Testament, we have experiences of compassion being shown to people, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widower. Um, and then we also look at how Jesus went out of his way to work with people who were vulnerable, who were marginalized, who were excluded, who were isolated. Um, and that, to me, sets a standard for us. And so there's a challenge for us, which is around allowing ourselves to have a look inwards and challenge ourselves and say, well, what are we doing that really reflects this? We have to ask ourselves, who are we excluding? Who do we exclude? Who do we include? And why do we include them? And I think that we have to also challenge ourselves to ask ourselves about what does welcome and hospitality mean in reality? in terms of how we engage with people who may look different from us or who may be of a different, have some aspect of difference. And I think that that's, you know, to me, there's that standard that I see, but also inwardly us challenging ourselves to ensure that what we're doing reflects justice. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that, uh, Jennifer, wrapping up that uh, uh, initial sort of round of questions. Now, as I said before, we were sent questions by those who uh, registered. Uh, and what I'll do is uh, sort of uh, address those questions uh, and then uh, allocate a particular question to one or two of the panelists. So the first question we received is this, what one response in relation to racial justice inspired you last year and why? And I'll read that one again. What one response in relation to racial justice inspired you last year and why? And I'm gonna put that question to uh, Edwina, and I'll put it to Chigal. So over to you first, Edwina. There were many responses that inspired me last year, but the one I'm sharing is that of a colleague, Lindsay Burtonshaw, who put together and delivered a course entitled Black Lives Matter, 
whiteness and racial justice learning for Quakers. I was furloughed. She didn't simply wait for the equality worker, me, to return. Consulting, she put together a five-week course with a comprehensive reading and watching list that grappled with racism, facing it head on. I'm also inspired because of the response. Over 200 people showed interest. This had to be culled to 80. And as such is one of the largest workshops I know of. And I'm inspired by the feedback. One participant said, it changed my relationship with Quakers big time. It turned my world upside down. Another, a member of the Black Brown People of Colour Fellowship, found that it met her needs too. She said it supported her in expressing herself as a black woman and it released her from feeling that doing the work was just her responsibility. So overall, I'm inspired by this experience of sharing the load. Good. Chigo. Uh, that was muted. Okay, you can hear me. Yeah, we can hear you, sir. Coming in loud and clear. Yes. And so what inspired me uh, was the, the uh, essentially the diversity of people that came out to protest during the Black Lives Matter protests. There was a sense that there was something about those protests that made it different from other times. Uh, many of, of you, and just like myself, have been involved in this field for many years. I've been involved in one way or another for the past 25 years. And it's always felt as if this is like something black people were doing to convince white people that there was a problem. But during the, most of the protests last year, um, there were a diversity of people out on the streets, white, black, Asian, all ethnicity, demonstrating, essentially saying that we no longer want to live in a world like this. Uh, so that's what I found uh, inspiring, the diversity of people. And if I'm to sort of think about one particular incident, it would be something that happened in the United States. Uh, I've forgotten what city it was, but it was a protest that, uh, that was, uh, the protesters were clashing with the police. And a group of uh, local moms who were predominantly white actually came and formed a barrier between the police and the protesters. And they, they called themselves a name, which I can't remember now, but the thing is that they were predominantly white and uh, somebody in the, in the crowd said, this is how to use your privilege. And the point they were making there is that, uh, you know, the fight against racism is everybody's fight. Uh, black people can fight with what they have and because they, we may feel we are the ones that are directly involved or affected, but white people can use their privilege to fight racism because ultimately racism is, is, uh, is an evil against all of humanity. And if we're able to end it, it will be a benefit to all of us. Good, thank you very much for those responses. Next question we were uh, sent again, this was sort of sent in anonymously and it's, uh, it says this, racial justice is now on the agenda in the church and society. From a church perspective, what strategies need to be put in place to ensure we obtain real equity? So let me just read that one again. It says racial justice is now on the church, now on the agenda in the church and society. From a church perspective, what strategies need to be put in place 
to ensure we obtain real equity. And then that person sort of puts a kind of a, a supplementary and, and says, let's not forget that we've been there before with the killing of Stephen Lawrence and the, the McPherson report in the 1990s. So, you know, how can we stop sort of uh, going over the same territory? How can real change take place? So I'm gonna ask uh, um, uh, Bevan Powell and uh, Kevin Snyman to respond to that. Um, Kevin first, then Bevan. So over to you, Kevin. Uh, okay, um, that's great. Um, I mean, th there are definitely things that the church can and must be doing, and, and, and we can talk about that. I, I've got three that I can go into later if you want to. But I do think that framing it around the, the McPherson report is really important. I don't know if you've come across Professor Gus John's um, evaluation of race awareness training within the police forces uh, following the, the McPherson report. And he's kind of his overall conclusion that the entire nationwide training operation was costly, wasteful exercising, dipping sheep, quote unquote. And he says that McPherson failed to understand the deeply rooted nature of racism within the British state and the institutions and crucially the positioning of black people. And so when we're talking about any strategies, we have to understand how deeply embedded racism is within our denominations. I think we have to realize that. And what, what these institutions tend to do is then to co-opt people like Stephen Rollins. Uh, they, they, they glorify him and they crown his mum. And they kind of co-opt them to, to justify doing nothing, as it were, just to keep things going, but to show everybody how work they are or something like that. So that, that is a warning that we get from, from that particular context. Um, and I, you know, I will talk about some of the things we can do, such as theology and prayer. Uh, particularly a theology of, of empire, uh, strategies of shifting our churches from unconsciously racist or even consciously racist to being actively uh, anti-racist uh, to things like um, the legacies of slavery. But I, I'll, let, I'll let Bevan take it up from here. Bevan, over to you, sir. Thank you. I, I, I'll talk from a, um, a Methodist perspective. You know, I'm... I, I'm probably one of the few people on the panel that actually gave evidence um, to the Stephen Lawrence um, inquiry and both written and uh, oral evidence. And one of the key things that, that, that you know, I was able to bring was uh, with other colleagues from the Black Police Association was the whole issue around um, institutional racism and focusing that in terms of our practice, our procedures, our strategies, and, and, and how that can in itself discriminate, exclude, and bring about all sorts of disproportionate outcomes in terms of criminal justice uh, and, and health systems, et cetera. Um, so so when, we, when we, we start to look at what can be done in the church, well, you know, the Methodist church has had uh, a, quite uh, a long history of, of, of looking at these issues. Um, you know, Stephen, Stephen Lawrence uh, was, was murdered in 1993. And in the Methodist church, they had already started to build training and to look at some of these issues. So going way back into the early eighties, um, you know, Sybil Phoenix and, Others were developing anti-racism training. Um, we, the, the church was bringing together black ministers to better understand some of these issues. And today, uh, 
the the church is uh, is is in the process of delivering a major strategy, which will start to address and build on the work that's been done over several decades to to look at some of the fundamental issues of racism. So you know we're starting to look at the issues of attitude, individual attitude, our culture, our systems, and understanding where racism is, is further impacted by our systems, by our culture, who's actually celebrated, who's excluded? How do we start to build trust and confidence? So in order to ensure that uh, irrespective of whether you're black, Asian, white, that you're able to participate in the full life of the church, we have to start to recognize that as a church, we have let down many in terms of racism. And we have to start to demonstrate to those individuals that we are serious and intentional in terms of eradicating racism. So we have to look at our systems, we have to look at representation, um, and we also have to look at some opportunities of, of positive action. Uh, and positive action in terms of described under the, the Race Equality Act. But I'm going to leave it there for, sorry, I said the Race the Equalities Act, I meant to say. I'm going to leave it there for, for the time being, because I know that we've got lots of questions um, and I could go on all night. So I'm going to stop here and hopefully uh, pick it up later on. All right, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so the next question uh, we, we uh, received is relation to Racial Justice Sunday. And, um, you know, it's this Sunday, it's the 14th of February. And uh, uh, it... It basically says, how does your denomination or church celebrate racial justice? And it's just a, a straightforward question. Um, I'm going to put this to, uh, to Yogi because I know that uh, uh, the Catholic Association of Racial Justice uh, produces material. So, uh, Yogi, uh, how, does, uh, how do the Catholics uh, 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 in particular mark this particular uh, uh, event in the church calendar? Well, uh, as you would know that in the Roman Catholic Church, we had been celebrating, this is our 26th year of celebrating Racial Justice Sunday. We used to have it on the second Sunday of September each year. And it was truly a day of celebration where you know every parish would celebrate its makeup. So the people within the parish would all be appreciated for their different cultures and so on. Uh, we've moved on since then. I mean, last year, we all had a, a terrible year, as everybody knows, and the Catholic Church, in turn, has reflected on all that had happened last year. We know that, uh, you know, there was so, so much racial inequality last year. We, we identified this nationally because of COVID-19. And then in America, we had the death of George Floyd. And we know that kind of created this whole international movement on the, the Black Lives movement. In the Roman Catholic Church, looking at all of that that has happened, uh, we acknowledge, first of all, and are now confronting our own failings as individuals and as a church. And so every parish in the country, every school, and every Catholic establishment has taken on the responsibility to work at being anti-racist. For this year, we have the heading Time to Act. 
So, you know, we've had all the teaching, we'll have all the preaching, uh, we've had the singing to it. Now we have to walk the talk. We're going to put into action what we've been thinking of all this time. So our bishops have asked us, so in, in every church that we look at the makeup of the parish itself, and then to look at how does this reflect in the leadership within the parish. So, you know, everybody should feel he or she belongs. And one of the ways in showing that is by looking at the leaders within the church, the readers, the Eucharistic ministers, the, the, the people who come to, to help with the sermons, all the little jobs, who's leading all of that? Do we actually reflect the makeup of the parish? We're also looking at the fabric of the church. For years and years and years, we've always had, uh, you know, our statues have been all of the same color. Uh, all the pictures on the walls have been people of the same color. If you look at the windows, there's no representation of black and ethnic minority people in those. Well, now is a time to act. Now we're looking at those and wanting to bring about change in the way we, we worship, the books we use, you know, the people within those books. Uh, I'll give you an example. If we're doing the sacraments in, in catechesis, do the children who come to these classes do they actually see somebody of their own in it? Are there black saints? Are there stories of black families? These are little things, very small things, but there are practical things that we're now looking at and wanting to introduce. One major thing to me is for the first time, we are now finding that the priests in our parishes are giving space, making special space so that black people can come and speak of their experience. And it is, they're asking not only that you listen, but you genuinely come to listen so that the, the other members of the parish are there listening with heart and ear so that they take on board the experience of those black people who for hundreds and hundreds of years have come in and have just been people in the pew. Let us take on board that we are baptized in the one same faith. We believe in the one same true God and we all believe that we're all equal. Now it is time to act. And that's what we're trying to do in the Catholic Church this year for Racial Justice Sunday. Thank, thank you, thank you very thank much. You, Richard. Thank you very much for that. Um, so the next question uh, we were sent is, uh, and again, it's sort of connected to that uh, conversations uh, about Black Lives Matter. It's, uh, it says this, how can we harness the energy, creativity and dynamism displayed by the young people in the Black Lives Matter protests so they become the next generation of racial justice champions? I'm going to put that one to Alicia. Alicia, over to you. And uh, while we're getting Alicia, let me just read that again. It's how can we harness the energy, creativity, and dynamism displayed by the young people in the Black Lives Matter protests so they become the next generation of racial justice champions? Alicia. Hiya. So, yes, I mean, my initial thought, we, churches need response teams that 
get those people that are involved, inspired, joining and a part of Black Lives Matter movements and other types of movements and um, responding to racial justice issues to reflect spaces for education, to develop strategies and action. It's, an, it's not enough to call them and say, you know, well done or encourage you or praying behind you, but churches should be spaces that provide the opportunity to develop strategies that uh, respond to these issues locally and nationally. And I think that it's the continual support um, continual investment in these young people as they're working it out, working out their politics, working out their theology, working out how they come together, and the continual investment of the local churches to say, how can we help you respond, think through, um, reflect, and it has to be intergenerational as well most importantly I think. Really, really showing that support, let's not just leave it to the young people, but all so allow the generations that have come before to feed into, to inspire and to help guide them as they become our, you know, racial justice champions of the future and of the present. I mean, young people are really leading it at the moment. They're really setting the tone, really setting the example. Um, and the, the generations before shouldn't be sitting back or shouldn't be intimidated, but should be bringing all that they did in their time, all that they continue to do, um, where light may not necessarily be showing so much, um, and working together. We really need those response teams there, ready, if they're meeting weekly, they're meeting monthly, um, to say, okay, what are you thinking? How are you thinking about it? What's it gonna look like next week? Um, bringing resources to help develop understanding, develop the thought process. Um, and as I said, most importantly, this is an intergenerational activity. It's necessary and it's working towards action and strategy, not just praying. We have prayer, it's amazing, I love to pray. I really, really do. It's a big part of how God uses us, how we move, how we develop our understanding. But as Jesus walked the streets, we've got to walk the streets. As Jesus spoke truth to power, we've got to do that physically, be there um, and create something that's worth documenting um, and setting the tone as well. Thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, so, so the next question uh, is, um, it says this, in the past, certain evangelical congregations have not fully engaged with racial justice. Uh, why is this the case? Uh, let me read that again. It says, uh, in the past, certain evangelical congregations have not fully engaged with racial justice. Why is this the case? And just looking around, I'm going to put that one to uh, Brother Israel. Israel, uh, over to you, sir. Thanks, Richard. Uh, let me start answering that question. Uh, by just saying, when we talk about evangelical churches in the UK, there is a breadth of diversity that exists in terms of theology, ecclesiology, uh, missiology, uh, and culture and ethnicity. So there are reformed evangelicals, uh, you know, there are charismatic evangelicals, there are progressive evangelicals, there are ecumenical evangelicals, there are African Caribbean Pentecostal and Holiness churches, which are also part of the evangelical stream. There are African Pentecostal churches of all shapes and sizes in terms of Zimbabwean Pentecostal, Nigerian Pentecostal, Ethiopian and Eritrean. There are Latin American churches and there are Asian churches. Chinese churches are different from South Asian churches, but they are all part of uh, the evangelical constituency. So that's the first and the starting point of unpacking that question. 
in terms of why some evangelical churches are slow in engaging with the issues of racial justice, I think at the heart of that problem uh, is the false dichotomy that is seen as mission here, racial justice here. There is that false dichotomy that is saying that uh, whenever we're doing mission, racial justice is seen as separate. So th th there is a slow embrace because it's not seen as a mission praxis. It's seen as something totally separate. It's seen as maybe a form of a social action or social activism in that sense. Until we begin to bridge that gap to our theological education, it will be difficult to overcome that challenge. And so what I think it's important is how can evangelicals uh, begin to see racial justice as an essential paradigm of their missiology or of their mission theology? Until they get to that understanding, I'm afraid it will still be a slow progress. Uh, and so one of the ways to do that is to decolonize our theological education. Uh, and I think someone put it in the chat there that how can we train ministers to begin to uh, think about multicultural churches. How can we put that into the Bible colleges? The problem at the moment in our theological colleges is that those who teach the books that you read and the modules that you do, they are things that don't really cover issues of racial justice. And even if they do, they are seen as uh, modules that you can choose from. They are not compulsory. So I teach in a lot of theological colleges. And part of the problem is that when you go in and teach, uh, the problem is that it's seen as, oh, this is not part of the curriculum. Uh, it is just kind of like an add-on extra that students can choose from until we'll make those kind of courses compulsory and say all ministers have to go through racial justice training. All ministers have to go through something that has to do with how you develop a multi-ethnic, a multicultural church. It's very, very important. Also, when I look at reading list of many theological colleges, the, again, the problem is, as I said, who is writing those books, uh, those theological textbooks, uh, and also who is teaching them. Uh, it's fair to say that most of our theological colleges are still being done mainly from Western systematic theology Whereas when we talk about contextual theology, I always find it amazing that when white folks are teaching systematic theology, it is theology. But when Africans are teaching systematic theology with the lens of African theology or black theology or other forms of contextual theology, then it is boxed at contextual theology. And here, there is a problem right there because you are not situating the narrative of racial justice, embedding it within the text of theological colleges and so there is that deformity or that sort of separation of uh, mission here and then racial justice here until we begin to come to that place where we actually see it as it is an essential part of our missiology, our mission theology, and therefore reflect in our book, in our teaching, and who's teaching them as well, then I'm afraid it will still be very slow. Thank you very much for that, uh, uh, Brother Israel. Um, Okay, so we were sent in a question, which um, uh, actually, uh, well, this has to be for Mandy. Uh, it says, with, with Scotland becoming uh, more racially diverse as a nation, how is the church grappling with this? So, Mandy, that's one for you. Okay, thank you. Um, maybe I should just say from the outset, I probably can only speak for the Church of Scotland. I can't actually speak for every single church in Scotland. Um, but... Looking at it from a perspective of the Church of Scotland, I would say, how is the church grappling with this? 
I would say we our approach has been quite slow, um, and and sometimes the direction hasn't been too grand. Um, this year, especially on the back of what happened with George Floyd, um, there's been a response, and many within the church have said, well, you know, what what are we doing? What, how are we making meaningful change? Um, at our General Assembly, we, we passed deliverances, and we have done in previous years as well, um, and we stated, you know, that racism is a sin, um, and this year we were looking at racial justice and how we work with others within the church to, to look at that, to look at our diversity. Um, but in some respects, we have been a bit slow off the mark um, in, in terms of that. Um, and how we make meaningful change, I think, is an important question because you don't want something that's knee-jerk. You don't want something that's tokenistic. That you know, when we saw that over the summer where things happened, and then you know, well, okay, we've done it. Tick the box. We're on to something else. But equally, we don't want to use that as an excuse to drag our heels and do nothing. Um, and so what we, we do, it has to be meaningful. It has to be a long acting you know, and, and, and a legacy. And we have to look at it as, as a, a whole church. And, and sometimes where um, the, the, the issues can be is we, we need to be able to willing to learn together, to learn together, to grow together, to acknowledge our mistakes as well. Um, and to acknowledge privilege, to understand that, um, to address systemic racism. And, and sometimes what we're finding, you know, especially within you know, the Church of Scotland, we're, we're kind of behind the mark a wee bit. Um, and that, you know, we sometimes take the tack, well, we don't really have many, you know, um, ethnic minorities in our communities, so we don't really need to worry about it. Well, actually, we do. And I think that's something that, you know, our congregations and we need to make sure that, you know, we are looking um, at that. And in order to have racial justice, we have to have awareness of systemic racism. Um, we can't bury our heads in the sand. Um, and we can't, like, you know, just decide that, you know, because we've got a black friend, then um, we're not racist. So um, I'm not a fashion accessory. Um, and I think also, we can't hide behind this, so because we don't have any black people in our church, we don't really need to think about it or spout. And, and this is the one which I think sometimes we have to be quite careful about: is that we spout, we're all one in Christ, so therefore we don't see colour, right? Because that's not going to get us very far. And that is actually that causes a problem when you say you don't see colour, so therefore we don't have to think about it, we don't have to discuss it. Um, we really have to look at what's going on. We have to look at what's going on within society that suddenly it's become acceptable to say, I don't want a black person, you know, either ministering to me or I don't want a black person or being asked, do you want a black person? Do you want a black minister? Do you want a black care worker? And people being allowed to say, no, I don't. So there's all sorts of levels of discrimination that, you know, as a church, we have to stand up and speak out against. Um, because, you know, we have to think about how diverse we are and how can we stand up for racial justice if we don't know. So one of the things that we are doing is for the first time, we're asking the question about how diverse our congregations are. We're asking about um, the sort of ethnic minorities that are within our communities, within our congregations, because we need to have a starting point to enable us to grow from there, to work together, to ask that question, well, why are people who are Christian from um, 
ethnic minorities not coming to our churches. They're going elsewhere, they're gathering in their own churches because they don't feel welcome. So what is it? What do we need to do? We need to look at ourselves, we have to address it, we have to work together. And we have to work together in terms of our church with people that doesn't start putting people in the back foot. You know, we, we want to work together, we want to address the problems of injustice. And it's not about accusing people, it's not about making people feel guilty, it's about saying, come on, let's learn together, let's work together, let's grow together, so that we can you know, work as a united body in faith at tackling injustice and ensuring that we are truly inclusive and that we are welcoming. But we can't do that if we don't get our own house in order. And I think that is one of the things that we are looking to do to say, right, we need to look at this, we need to look at what was our role, um, historically within the slave trade, our buildings, we need to kind of recognise that and acknowledge that and not hide behind things or bury our head in the sand um, and pretend that these things don't exist and it's not a problem. Because we are diverse in Scotland and we have to acknowledge that and embrace that. Um, but to be able to embrace it, we have to have an understanding of just how diverse we are. And so if our own congregations don't know that, then that's not a good starting point and that's something that we're trying to work and we acknowledge that there are other churches that are way ahead of us in these things and we learn from them you know there's no point in reinventing the wheel there's some really good work's been done and we need to learn from that and, and work with other partners other church organizations other denominations um, to help us to you know embrace that and go forward Thank you. Thank you very much. And interestingly enough, you mentioned uh, slavery and colonialism uh, there. And uh, one of the questions we've got is this. It says, how should the church come to terms with its connection to slavery and colonialism? And uh, Jennifer's been a little quiet in the corner there. So I'm going to put this one to you, Jennifer. So over to you. How has the church or how should the church come to terms with its connection to slavery and colonialism? Okay, so thank you. I, I think that um, the first thing is it's important that we recognise it and we acknowledge it, that's really important. But at the same time, we don't allow it to determine our future. I think churches need to really try to understand the damage that colonialism and slavery has caused and also recognize the, 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 the energy and the bravery it has taken and the courage it has taken for people to push back against that. Um, because if you think about, about colonialism, it, it, and slavery, it thrived on a system that perpetuated division, you know, and, and, and exploitation and, you know, lies and misinformation based on things that weren't in existence, racial division and all these sorts of things. And I think that bearing in mind that shaped the attitude of many of the early missionaries, um, you know, so in their minds, they were bringing Jesus to people and they were doing a great thing. There wasn't really any understanding that um, you know, Jesus was already in Africa, you know, in North Africa since the, the you know, first, first century. Um, but because they only had one version of the truth. And I think that you know, when we think about that, colonialism also shaped our understanding of ourselves and it shaped the value that we place on ourselves. And so that's why today you know, we have so much division and, and strife amongst, amongst uh, collectively black people as a group, you know, silly things based on the shade of someone's skin, the, the, the type of texture of hair they have, the shape of their nose or physical features. And people are still judging us based on these stereotypes and prejudice that were rooted in the colonial and slavery past. 
So I think it's also about us understanding the way that it has shaped how we interact with society and the value that society places on us. I think going forward, there is a real challenge for us to collectively recognize the big, big truth in what we actually do. As a church, you have to recognize what you've actually been party to and, and how collectively as a church you've benefited from that. And I think it's really important in this that we, we are talking about reconciliation, talking about forgiveness. And that needs really honest, reflective conversations that where you're considering the real issues. Um, for me, it's also important that we're listening to stories because it's one thing to read about something, but when someone tells you something about themselves, how they're personally impacted, when you understand that person's experience, how they've been, how they feel when they, they're part of, when they enter your church, how they, how, how welcome feels to them and what exclusion feels like. When you understand that, it allows you to then get a real picture and from that picture, you can really start to identify some of the things that you can and should be doing. You know, I think, and I think it's important that we are taking action. So honest conversations that will allow us to take actions. I think collaboration is important. So what we see now, the collaboration of different Christian denominations, um, drawing on strength, working towards a collective aim. I think that's really important. Identifying key strategic priorities, the sorts of things you can do to make a difference. Um, and across many denominations, we see them establishing lots of sort of racial um, task forces um, and racial inclusion groups. And that is a good thing, but it has to also be resourced and it has to be followed through. But I think someone else said earlier on about, you know, we've seen these sorts of things and nothing's really come of it. So this is a time when I don't think we can fail in this. This is something where we have to do something a little bit differently, um, you know, and, and really focus our efforts on addressing some of the real challenges, the significant challenges, you know. So even within the Salvation Army, like many other denominations, we're focused on racial justice and racial inclusion. We're looking at ways through um, conversations with people, uh, you know, what is their experience, and using that to shape what our organization could and should look like. What, could, what, what, is, what does welcome look like? What does hospitality look like in a Christian setting? You know, and it's and we're touching on everything. We're looking at our approach to leadership, how we hold people to account, how we approach mission, how we educate ourselves and others. So it's about taking small steps, um, moving towards a more inclusive way of reaching out and connecting with people so that we really get some intercultural exchange and move away from this colonialist mindset. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I'm looking at the time, and uh, according to the clock on my computer, it's uh, we're out of time. Now, listen, um, can I, if you can indulge me for another ten minutes, because we've got a number of questions here, and I just feel as if we're sort of just kind of just scratching the surface of this key subject, and I just want to sort of, um, uh, you know, put a few more questions to the panel. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the questions that was sent in by Neville Levy is, should the church be more visible and a leading light in the community when there are social stroke racial justice issues or marches such as Black Lives Matter? So should the church be more participative in these actions? Now, who wants to, uh, to answer that? Any takers, please just raise your hand and just speak. Okay, so I'm seeing uh, Jennifer and I'm seeing 
Bevan. So I'll go with Jennifer and Bevan. Fire away. And please keep your, if you could keep your, be as curt as possible in terms of your response, that'd be fantastic. Because we've got a question. Thank you. Yes, I, I think that wherever there is injustice, the church has a responsibility to step in. The, the church has a very unique voice. It has access to spaces that individuals don't have access to. And so championing the people who are marginalized, championing people who are vulnerable, who have been excluded, that's a function to me of a church. That's part of mission and part of what we should be seeking to do. And so, yes, I would say absolutely, you know, yes, we're looking at racial justice, but it really could be something to do with another protected group, or another marginalized group in society. And so I say, yes, that's that the church has a voice and we need to use our voice well and articulate and, and, and represent people who are unable to do so for themselves. Excellent. Bevan. Um, I, I totally agree with what's been said. I think the church should be seen as leading on, on these issues um, in society, um, should be campaigning on these issues, should be holding to account um, um, government on, on these issues. Uh, the, the whole issue of inequality around health and criminal justice, etc. Um, many of our communities don't have a voice and can't challenge. So we see the issues of stop and search. We see the issues of uh, black women that are more likely to die in childbirth. We, we, we see the issues of deprivation. The church has an opportunity to lead on these issues and to challenge on these issues, to campaign on these issues. Um, and I think if the church is to be seen as relevant in the 21st century, then we must be taking a lead on these issues. Good, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, especially for keeping your responses uh, uh, succinct. Uh, we've got a question here from Rosie Hopley, who says, what examples of great activity and justice have you seen in the church that you can share with us? We'd love to hear examples that we can give uh, thanks for. So it's about, you know, good practice, as they say. Um, you know, is there anything that you've seen that you, you feel you could share with uh, our uh, listeners out there? Any good, good practice? Anything that, uh, you know, you, you would say you would want to sort of promote, champion? Any, any takers? Tell you what, let's, let, seeing as time is uh, of the essence, I'll leave that one with you. You can think about that as I move on to the next question. And this is a, a, a sort of a, a theological one. Uh, and it touches on some of what uh, Israel said. It says, how can we... Uh, how can theological college prepare future ministers so that they can embrace the issues and lead Christ-centered multicultural churches? That's from Lindiwe Maisik Maisko. I hope I've pronounced uh, your name correctly, Lindiwe. Uh, Chigo, I see you. You're looking very chomping at there. Do you want to take that one in terms of theological training? And does anyone else feel comfortable with that? Yeah, I will. I will yes, I'll, I'll have a go. But just say the beginning part of the question again. Yeah, so it's how can theological college prepare future ministers so they can embrace the issues and lead Christ-centered multicultural churches? Right. Um, yes, it's. I mean, it's similar to part of what um, similar to what Israel has already touched on. But I'll just mention one or two things. There was a report that was written uh, quite a long time ago, and and I think it's actually uh, your organization. Uh, but then I think it was called Council of Churches for Britain and Ireland. And they, they wrote a report about, I think it was called something like racial justice in theological training. And one of the things they recommended was that 
instead of um, um, theological colleges doing um, short courses on racial justice, that what they should do is to ensure that the issue of racial justice actually permeates the whole of their syllabus. So rather than having a two-week course, a term, which people can opt for, you actually have the issue of racial justice on every part of their syllabus, on every part of their program. So that's one thing that can be done. Syllabuses can be done in such a way that racial justice permeates every aspect of it. But then they can do other things. They can ensure that they have within their teaching staff people from a minority ethnic background. They can ensure that their students are, who are from minority ethnic backgrounds are supported so that when people are coming out of those colleges, they will be better prepared to minister in a multi-ethnic context, which is what you know, the, uh, Britain is becoming now. So just as a sort of a summary of an answer, ensuring they have syllabus that is permeated by issues of racial justice, ensuring that their teaching staff also have minority ethnic people and supporting the students who they have in college. Thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, so we've got a question here uh, from Lily and it's, uh, why is South Africa held up as a success story because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Yet she says, all I saw was black people saying sorry for seeking not to live under apartheid, which was not equivalent to their white abusers. So let me read that one again. I mean, it's an interesting one. Um, why is South Africa held up as a success story because of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, yet all I saw was black people saying sorry for seeking not to live under apartheid, uh, which was not equivalent to their white abusers? Uh, gosh, now, uh, let me just put that to the panel. Anyone feel comfortable with that? Yeah, I can have a go. I can yeah, try. Please do, please do. Yeah, I suppose in the South African context, I suppose because of what Mandela did, his vision and template, which underpins the truth and reconciliation issues uh, that was developed there and being used elsewhere and under parts of Africa, uh, was seen as a good case study or example of maybe what racial justice could look like. Now, anyone who has been to South Africa, as I have been, will realize that while apartheid, you know, the political apartheid has been dismantled, economic appetite still exists in South Africa. Uh, so that today when you go there, if you are black, you are still very poor. If you are colored, you are just maybe above. Uh, and then if you are white, you are doing so well. I mean, I went to some areas in Cape Town uh, where white folks live. And it's completely different from where black folks live in that. So one could question that all that hard work uh, that was invested uh, into, uh, you know, that Mandela put in with some of his colleagues uh, in truth and reconciliation and what they did, uh, some of that work has not been carried on. And I think that's the problem. So why politically uh, segregation is dismantled, economically, uh, there are still a lot of issues in South Africa. Uh, in that sense that I think uh, it, it begs the question, it makes people to ask uh, the question and look back and think, was that a mistake? What should that should, should more have been done uh, in that sense? And we even push a bit further and said, yes, why Mandela's template was good that some would critique it and say, 
maybe it was too favorable toward white folks uh, than black folks or colored folks in that sense. So there is that critique that people will bring into that uh, in that sense. And I can understand to some extent why that critique will come up because as I said, having been to South Africa a few times, uh, some of the things I see, uh, I mean, there was a time I was there, I see black folks going through the dustbin to look for food. And it really breaks my heart that a human being created in God's image was looking for food in the dustbin in South Africa of today. That's how bad things are uh, really in that sense. So it's still very disturbing. Uh, and I think one can question sometimes the old truth and reconciliation process there. Thank you very much, Israel. We'll, we'll take two more questions and then wrap up. I'm mindful of the time. So we've got a question here. Um, uh, and it's relation to, in relation rather to uh, um, ja, Reverend Gerald Robinson Brown, uh, Rehi's tweet uh, on Captain Tom. Uh, got actually got a couple like that. And it says, what does the panel think of the church's response, the Church of uh, England's response to, to that? Anyone feel comfortable responding to that? And you could do so in an individual capacity. I'm not expecting you to speak on behalf of your denomination, but uh, as an individual uh, uh, in, in, uh, in response to something that has garnered quite a lot of immediate attention. Anyone feel comfortable with that? Just looking for any responses? I can. Okay, please do. Yeah. Um... I can just share something. I, I, you introduced me as the chair of the Anglican Minority Ethnic Network. And uh, as a network, we looked at, um, at the issue. I think one of the things that stood out for us was the fact that the Diocese of London did not give him the kind of protection that you would expect to be given to a member of the clergy who was coming under such racist attack. Uh, it was something that disappointed many people and it was one of the things we pointed out in the statement that we released. But the diocese, after having faced that criticism, then responded in a different way. Uh, rather than focusing on what he did, they started to focus on defending him against the attack that he was under. And, um, and, and that is the right way to respond. Now, his particular tweet, uh, it's not so much the issue because uh, anybody can tweet anything and people may well say that the tweet might have been ill-judged and he did apologize for the tweet. But for us as a network and for quite a lot of people who I'm, who I'm hearing from, it is the fact that the diocese didn't give him enough protection, which is what you would expect when a member of the clergy that is under your care comes under racist attack. So that's all I want to say for now. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for that. And uh, I'm going to end with this question, and it's from Beverly Hillman. And it's, she says, one of the elephants in the room is the image and portrayal of, of the white Jesus. This misinformation is discouraging some black people from attending uh, church or getting involved, especially young people. Jesus was a man. Where did uh, where did he look like? Well, what did he look like? The truth must be told to dispel the myths. So it's the white Jesus paradigm. Anyone uh, feel comfortable to answer that? Uh, Alicia, please fire away. Anyone else? Hi, yes, yeah, so I'll start. Obviously, it can be followed yeah, yeah. by anyone. Um, um, this is basically what my research is on, why people 
um, black people are leaving the church, resisting the church based on this issue of white man's religion. Um, and some people are oblivious to those on the fringes just slipping out and joining other religions, joining other movements because they don't feel satisfied with the education, um, with the myths that are being told. And it's something that we have to confront as a church and it's something that anyone can do simply by doing even a basic plain reading of the text and also just having a conversation about the implications of attending a church as Yogi was saying earlier and seeing a white Jesus everywhere seeing white saints everywhere not necessarily seeing as well as not seeing representation of them and the community but also being representative historically of the biblical text it is a big issue um, and it's something that can be addressed through taking people step by step and educated an educational process um of and, and ways of looking at the bible i mean i always say this every time i come out when i started my theological training i thought i was doing a bible study about pressing deeper into the presence of god because that's a lot of what i did growing up in church and then actually what was happening in theological seminaries is so much different to what happens in churches dissecting it doing exegesis looking at you know that looking at it historically critically and all of that and we need to continue to bridge that gap between the academy and the church because an issue like what color was Jesus is actually quite a basic question that so many people like me and the people that I work with have never ever really been able to ask um, and I mean representation is slightly different it's equally important I think um, but we have to continue to try and bridge that gap between what happens in the academy and what happens in the churches so that people have agency so that people know where to look so that they can access resources as well um, and to you know to study deeper for those who want to in that way um, so yeah, we've got to continue um, to bridge that gap. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Alicia. Now, listen, we're, we're out of time um, uh, and uh, really don't know what to say. In fact, we've uh, gone over time uh, as such. But, uh, you know, such is the nature of this topic that, you know, when you uh, get some keen minds in a room talking about this particular issue, this is what happens. So uh, we're going to have to wrap it up right there. Uh, but before we sort of end the session, I would still like to um, uh, bring uh, folks' attention to Racial Justice Sunday, which is uh, Sunday. Um, I know that there are plenty of ministers who are on this call, uh, and I know that more diligent ones have probably written their sermons for this Sunday. Um, you know, this Sunday, the 14th of February, is also Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day is a day we you know, naturally associate with love. And it's often said that justice is love in action. And uh, you know, what I would encourage uh, ministers to do this Sunday is to bear in mind Racial Justice Sunday. And there are lots of fantastic resources. We say a plethora of resources on the CTBI website, the Churches Together in Britain and Ireland uh, website uh, to do with Racial Justice Sunday. Please look on that site, uh, use the material so that this Sunday, when it comes to uh, the, the, the sermon that you're going to deliver uh, to your uh, congregation, there is something in there on racial justice. Um, so let me just uh, say thank you very much to our panel. As I said, you know, um, you know, this was a, a wonderful roster of keen minds and uh, 
you know, I feel inspired and educated. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to take away and use for my work uh, from what I've heard this evening. So thank you very much uh, for taking the time. I know you're all very capable individuals and all very busy individuals. So it's great that you uh, used your time to be with us this evening. Um, I would also like to thank those who sent in questions and apologies uh, that uh, for, uh, to those uh, for whom we didn't get uh, we didn't get around to responding to your uh, points. Just to say that this session has been recorded and it should be available in a, a few days' time on the CTBI website. And also on that website is more information about uh, the other webinars that uh, CTBI will be hosting over the coming weeks and months. So all I would like to do is to say to you, good night, uh, remain blessed and stay safe. And thank you again for joining us. Good night. The Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons license.